If you're going to go out and try cases, you're going to lose cases. And don't be afraid of that. And certainly don't be afraid of that uh, in such a way that it causes you to lose your integrity in how you deal with others because that loss is temporary, but you lose your integrity, you've lost something you're never going to regain. That defense attorney has an obligation to speak candidly to his own client. And that's unprofessional if he doesn't. If, if I had a client that asked me to assert some ridiculous position in a case, I would tell my client, no, we're not going to do that. And there have been times where I've had to tell a client, if you want that asserted in court, you're going to have to fire me and get somebody else. I'm not going to do it. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good afternoon, friends and lovers of the law, as my co-host Robin Frazier-Clark likes to say, who's with me today. We've got a special edition of our podcast, See You in Court, which deals with the topic of professionalism uh, today. And uh, I'm always reminded when I hear the term professionalism, that uh, the professionalism in Georgia was sort of spearheaded by Harold Clark, who said that ethics was the minimum you were supposed to do, but professionalism was lawyers and judges trying to reach their their peak and do the very best that they could. And Robin and I were uh, picked to do a, well, Robin was picked and then she, she suckered me into being her co-panelist for a program for the Atlanta Bar uh, recently. And, and Robin, maybe you want to, maybe you want to give a little of the backstory to our listeners about uh, about how you got picked to be the professional one and then decided I needed some professional education too. Thank you, Lester. Um, well, my sweet mate, Rob Wellen, who's a divorce attorney in Atlanta, and I would deem Rob as Mr. Professionalism because if you want to be like somebody as a lawyer, you should try to be like Rob Wellen. He's professional in all Respect. And one of our past guests as well. Right. So if, if listeners want to go back and hear the Rob Wellen podcast, they can do that. That's right. He, he was asked by the Atlanta Bar Association, and he's a board member of the Atlanta Bar Foundation uh, to uh, chair the professionalism seminar. And he asked, he actually, Lester, he actually asked you and me at the same time. I didn't <laughs> sucker you in or however you want to phrase it. Although if I'm being asked to do it, you know, I'm going to ask you to, to join. But Rob well, actually that. actually already had you in mind as you and I, two past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia, uh, who may know a little bit uh, about professionalism. And I, I think he's right. I was very I was very I was very honored to be asked uh, always by you, but uh, also especially uh, about Rob. And uh, I think it's always a timely topic. And I think it's something that is important, not just to our lawyer listeners, but uh, also to our non-lawyer listeners, because when you go to choose a lawyer, uh, you don't want somebody that just does the minimum. You want somebody that, that aspires to the highest uh, ideals of professionalism. So with that in mind, you know, CLE for our non-lawyers is called Continuing Legal Education 
you have to have, uh, I think, 12 hours every year as a Georgia lawyer to keep your license valid. One hour of those has to be in ethics, which again, as I quoted Justice Clark, the late Justice Clark, what is the minimum that lawyers or lawyers and judges are expected to do? And professionalism is uh, aspiration to the best. And he started, I believe, the Chief Justice's Commission on Professionalism. Uh, and you have to have an hour of, of education on that. And so a lot of our uh, folks uh, during this seminar were people who were trying to get that hour of professionalism. And uh, uh, Robin, you you have a little background information, I yeah. think, on the uh, professionalism movement, as it's been called here in Georgia. Yeah, it's a it's a great thing, uh, I believe, and I'm proud of it. But I wanted to share with uh, our listeners the mission statement of the Chief Justice's Commission on Professionalism, and there are five components that I wanted to share, uh, which will help set the stage for the professionalism seminar you're going to hear. The mission statement of the Chief Justice's Commission on Professionalism states that as officers of the court, we lawyers each have a duty to self-regulate our daily practices and to exercise the highest levels of professional integrity in our relationships with our clients, other lawyers, the courts, and the public to fulfill our obligations to improve the law and legal system and to ensure access to that system. The five components I wanted to share with you are these. First, to my clients. To my clients, I offer faithfulness, competence, diligence, and good judgment. I will strive to represent you as I would want to be represented and to be worthy of your trust. The second component is to opposing parties and their counsel. And it says to the opposing parties in their counsel, I offer fairness, integrity, and civility. I will seek reconciliation, and if we fail, I will strive to make our dispute a dignified one. The third component is to the courts. And to the courts and other tribunals and to those who assist them, I offer respect, candor, and courtesy. I will strive to do honor to the search for justice. The next component is to my colleagues. And to my colleagues in the practice of law, I offer concern for your welfare. I will strive to make our association a professional friendship. The next component is to the profession. And to the profession, I offer assistance. I will strive to keep our business a profession and our profession a calling in the spirit of public service. And finally, the last component we offer to the public. And to the public and our systems of justice, I offer service. I will strive to improve the law and our legal system, to make the law and our legal system available to all, and to seek the common good through the representation of my clients. And those are the five components of the Commission on Professionalism that we study every year and promote and that our CLE is about. One thing I wanted to mention, Lester, one of the things even talks about the practice of law, our profession, as being a calling, which reminds me of our last episode with Doug Amar and the Georgia Justice Project. And that's the way right. that's the way he saw his becoming a lawyer was a calling. And, and I think many of us feel that way. Yeah. I, I, and I've I said this, I think, in the professional pro professionalism uh, panel that we did. And I think I said it uh, uh, in the uh, the podcast we did with uh, Doug Amar. But, uh, you know, if you go to most other uh, common law countries, they don't talk about being admitted to the bar. They talk about being called to the bar. 
Um, and I, I, I do think that it's, um, you know, it's one of the learned professions, you know, in, in historically the learned professions have been law, medicine, and clergy. And uh, I think uh, both of those, uh, and I'm, I'm not knocking other folks, and I'm, I'm fully cognizant of the fact that, uh, that, that all of those are meant to be, you know, hopefully profitable endeavors that people need to make money to live and whatnot. But I do think that when you're talking about a profession, you're talking about something that's a career plus. It's got something else involved in it. It's got something uh, where you're trying to uh, fulfill a sort of deeper uh, spiritual calling, uh, whatever your uh, uh, faith story uh, might be, uh, that that imperils you to to take those steps and do that. Yeah. So. And, and I will just say the other one, then I think I may have mentioned this in the seminar that we're getting ready to play, um, but to, to our, our clients that we offer, um, that we will treat you the way we want to be treated. We will represent you the way we want to be represented, which we all know that to be the golden rule. And uh, we talk about that as being a, a pretty good way to practice law. Were, were, were you ever a 4 hr uh, Robin? I, I I, I wasn't. I really wasn't. I, I, I was not either, but I, I, I know maybe I listened to too much Jerry Clower, uh, you know, uh, who is the comedian in my younger days. But, you know, the four etchers have a pledge, you know, and it's I pledge my head to clearer thinking, my heart to greater loyalty, my hands to larger service and my health to better living. And that's the four H's uh, that you get there. And I think about the lawyer's creed sort of in the same way. And that, uh, you know, and we've talked about this before, the word integrity comes from the word integer, which means one, that you're one person, but you've got all those different components. And for a lawyer, it's, it's, it's what you do uh, for your clients, how you treat the other side, uh, uh, how you treat your colleagues in the profession, and, uh, and then what your duties sort of are, you know, to the public at large. So I think all of those are things that as lawyers, we just simply cannot uh, highlight enough. So the way this uh, seminar ran is that uh, uh, we had Rob Wellen uh, talk a bit, and then he started asking you and I hypotheticals, Robin. And uh, I think some of those hypotheticals involve divorce cases, which I think you and I have not uh, engaged in domestic relations practice. I know I hadn't for well over 15 years, um, and I'm kind of thankful for that, although I have the greatest admiration for people who do that. But it's, it's sort of ethical quandaries or potential or professionalism quandaries that you would be in and how you would react in certain situations. So I certainly hope that our uh, listeners uh, enjoy that uh, today and that it will it's meant to encourage thought uh, about uh, what you should do in those situations. So with that, we'll start our playback of the uh, Atlanta Bar CLE on professionalism. Hi, my name is Jenna Emery, and I'm the chair of the Atlanta Bar's CLE Board of Trustees this year. The CLE Board is a 15-member board responsible for planning bar-wide CLEs such as this one. I wanted to thank Brittany Browning of Hall Booth Smith and Jackie Saylor of the Saylor Law Firm for all of their hard work in planning this event. I would also like to thank you all for attending this two-hour professionalism CLE, which will consist of a panel on professionalism from a trial lawyer's perspective, moderated by Robert Wellen, and a panel on professionalism and appellate advocacy moderated by Brittany Browning. If you have questions or comments, please remember to use the Q&A feature, not the chat. The chat is for the panelists. And I will let Robert Wellen take it away for his first panel. 
Thanks, Jenna. Appreciate it. Uh, I'd like to welcome everyone here. Uh, we certainly appreciate your attendance and being here. Uh, I hope this uh, presentation will be uh, worthwhile and that uh, you can use this and be helpful in your practice. Uh, as Jenna said, we're going to be using the uh, Q&A, uh, so please feel free to submit questions, comments uh, right below the screen. Um, each of us will be providing our personal views of professionalism, uh, and then we will uh, <clears throat> intermingle uh, those some vignettes, uh, actual or um, uh, hypothetical scenarios that's, that one or more of us have dealt with in the past. Um, and I can say uh, truthfully that we have a couple of luminaries with us today, uh, both of whom uh, have served our bar as presidents of the state bar and also similarly have served in a different <clears throat> situation or different organizations uh, that have been very beneficial uh, to the uh, Atlanta Bar and to the State Bar as well. Um, and I suggest that you all look in the materials uh, for <clears throat> their CVs, which, uh, which are most impressive, and I'm delighted that they have agreed to, to come here today. So being the moderator, uh, I guess I'll start things off. Uh, I have submitted uh, a number of materials for you to review, but I intend to only make casual uh, comments about or references to it. Uh, only to say, though, that my dog, Dakota, sends his regards and enjoyed posting, posing for the pictures, especially uh, the one where he lifts his leg. So I, I welcome your review of those remark, those materials. Uh, I will begin uh, by putting us in a reference point, uh, as has been aptly stated by Chief Justice Harold Clark, who was a pioneer uh, in insisting on professionalism. And that is the statement he has made many times and we've made many times. And that is ethics is that which is required. Professionalism is that which is expected. But is that always easy? As Carl Llewellyn, a professor of Columbia, Yale and University of Chicago has stated, the lawyer is a man of many conflicts. More than anyone else in our society he must contend with competing claims for his time and loyalty. You must represent your client to the best of your ability and never lose sight of the fact that you are an officer of the court with a special responsibility for the integrity of the legal system. You will often find, brethren and sister, that those professional duties do not easily work with each other. You will discover, too, that they get in the way of your other obligations to your conscience, your God, your family, your partners, your country, and all the other perfectly good claims on your energies and hearts. You will be pulled and tugged in a dozen of directions at once. You must learn to handle these conflicts. So as you know, the lawyer's creed, the aspirational ideas, have been formally adopted by the Supreme Court 
and I will also make reference to them, which are also in your materials. Now they have even gone further, and that is the tenets of professionalism have been ingrained in the law itself. I have uh, cited the materials green versus green. And so this is a case where a pro se party uh, living out of state uh, did not appear in court despite the notice in the paper that suggested what, uh, what she should be doing, but only requiring, as we know from experience, the first five cases to be present. However, in this particular instance, the other party and counsel did show up, um, but even had to locate the file from a former clerk's office to show the judge. He was aware of the party being pro se and even had her address. Justice Benham, in writing in the Green case, stated, the spirit of cooperation and civility when taken together with the notions of fundamental fairness that lie at the court of due process of law requires that attorneys as officers of the court <clears throat> make a good faith effort to ensure that all parties to a controversy have a full and fair opportunity to be heard. So I have read the cases that cite Green, but never have found a better refinement of that principle. The case was reversed, and basically it was reversed because of a lack of professionalism. So today, what I would like to do is concentrate on one of the clear goals of the aspirational ideals, and that is integrity. In the lawyer's creed, it is stated that the opposing parties and counsel, I offer fairness, integrity, and civility. To the courts, I offer respect, candor, and courtesy. As Judge Marvin Frankel has written, we should all be what I would term ministers of justice. As such, we would have to reconsider and revise a system of loyalty to clients that results too often in cover-ups, frauds, and injury to innocent people. A favorite quotation in the legal profession is Lord Brown's declaration that an advocate would stand against the world. Lord Brown was wrong. We should be less willing to fight the world and more concerned to save our own souls. As ministers of justice, we should find ourselves more positively concerned that we are now with the pursuit of truth. I have consulted with uh, Tim Terrell, a professor at Emory, uh, who has described um, what he believes to be the refinement of our view of professionalism. And in the materials, I have cited those different uh, elements of professional tradition. One of those elements is ethics and integrity. He mentions the responsibility to say no and the courage to say yes. If your client offers his two best friends legal advice, that he wants you to pursue, just say no. 
If your client makes certain demands you believe are counterproductive to the case, say no. If the client tells you he has certain evidence and information he wants to reserve for trial, certainly say no. If the opposing counsel begins to harass a witness at deposition, say no. If she starts to develop the same personality type of her client, sending threatening or accusatory emails, say no. Dr. Oppenheimer, a clinical psychologist who regularly appears uh, as an expert witness uh, and was in a seminar uh, with me some time ago, shared a quote from a colleague to help us out on this particular issue. And basically that colleague says, just cut it off. Use the BIF response, B-I-F-F. Be brief, informative, sentence or two stating the facts, F as in friendly, and firm, make a clear statement of what you will do or what you won't do. If you receive a host of discovery, all not dealing at all with the case, just say no. If your opponent continually calls and emails you about how great their case is and demands settlement on their terms, just say no, but hold the manner of settlement open so you can continue to discuss the case. If your judge tells you to proceed with the trial in the absence of the other side, just say respectfully, no. May I check or, or find out why opposing counsel is not here? If the judge calls the lawyers into her chambers after listening opening statements to push you to settlement and the terms are not in your client's best interest, just say no, respectfully. Conversely, if you are asked to take on a particularly difficult case by a voluntary organization such as Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation, say yes. If you are asked to take on to stipulate documents otherwise requiring a custodian of records to appear, say yes. If you are asked to be a mentor, either through the first year program that's required of all people coming out of law school, or on your own, say yes. I put in the materials I, I uh, mentioned Atticus Finch, Atticus Finch to kill a mocking as a glowing example of saying yes. Now, I would like to further amplify the idea regarding mentoring. I have included in, in uh, my materials, a, an article that I've previously written on the importance of being a mentor and believe it is actually a component of professionalism. It is that profound responsibility to assist lawyers in their own path to act professionally. So what is it that uh, a mentor can do? be a sponsor, be a teacher, be a role model, be a coach, sounding board, enhancer to encourage the protege, friend, 
catalyst. As found in the end of court venture material one time, it stated finally, mentoring means not just helping with the development of professional skills, it means instilling the right, the right values at what is an early impressionable stage. Integrity, the highest ethical standards, fairness, civility, and courteousness. As mentioned in this mentoring piece, I was very fortunate to have my own mentor uh, who absolutely uh, changed my attitude towards the law, changed uh, my respect for the law, at least not change it, but enhance it, and provided an opportunity that I would never have had had I not had him as a mentor. Professor Terrell aligns his view of professionalism around the rule of law. Now, we have uh, had that bandied about uh, almost a catch-all phrase. But the reality is that it really means to be the authority of as the influence of law and society, whereby all individuals are considered to be equal, subject to statutory authority and legal process. As outlined, this entails respect for the system and for those who practice and participated in it. A good example is mediation. It works when you believe it will work. Uh, I cite the play movie 12 Angry Men when I get preparing my client for the mediation because I think it absolutely defines how the jury system works and how things do come together, uh, whether you believe uh, at first that they will. A respect for the system. Likewise, despite the possible hijinks of opposing counsel during the trial, we end up shaking hands after the trial's over and may even go out for a drink. In an end of court that I belong to, the same holds true, where we drink, eat together with lawyers, judges, and students. Once a month, we address these issues and provide support for each other. We appreciate rule of law. Finally, I think a lot of this can be summed up by the late and former Chief Justice Harris Hines when he addressed a classroom of law students. You are a community. You are coming to deal with each other in a stressful, chaotic atmosphere that is designed to be adversarial in many of its relationships. That doesn't mean that you have to put aside the moral compass you brought to this law school or forget that we are all neighbors in the practice of law. Keep in mind, you fight every day to love your colleagues, to love them as people in the same way you love other people that you interact with daily. You want them to do well. You can beat them in the case, you can beat them in the transaction, but that doesn't mean you need to be mean to them or fight with them or not treat them as fellow important members of our profession. We will now, I hope, start with the hypotheticals and I will go ahead and read the first one. And I solicit both Lester and Robin 
to become involved in this. Oh, hey, Rob. Yes. I thought, I thought Lester and I were each going to talk a little bit also. Well, I've got about five minutes left. I thought I'd throw one hypothetical out. Oh, okay. We'll, okay. We'll go from there. In a trial regarding all aspects of family law, the husband was a professional while the wife was essentially a homemaker. The wife had married previously and during the separation met Abe Adulter, who she spurned because he tried to take advantage of her year at that time. Years later, during the present marriage, Abe Alter ended up living nearby and going through his own divorce. Prior to the trial, Abe, still miffed over the rejection, contacted the husband and told the husband that they were had sex together earlier and during the marriage. At the trial, counsel confronted the wife on cross to demand that she confess to this adulterous conduct. The husband's only information about the alleged affairs came from Abe, secondhand. The husband had no suspicion that she would cheat on him, nor did he know this person. Was the confrontation proper? Does the attorney have an obligation to investigate the claim of adultery, never having talked to Abe? Is it ever proper to cross-examine a witness on any issue with no direct knowledge of the facts? Is there a good faith basis when you do cross them? What's your opinion? Am I, am, I, am I supposed to go first here or has uh doesn't matter? I'm just asking which what what uh what well, whether there's a professional component here that I have uh, brought forth. Well, I, I, I will uh, uh, let me state first, uh, Rob, my, my admiration for you for staying in the domestic relations arena. Um, I've tried about 100 jury trials, and I think about four of them were divorces, and I felt like I met my quota. Uh, so I have not uh, not been involved in that particular <laughs> area of litigation, thankfully, uh, for some time, uh, though I have the greatest admiration for uh uh, for for those who do, and it, it's a very, uh, I think, difficult and emotional uh, part of the law. Uh, I, I think, and and one of the things that uh, I, I did want to reference today is uh, we we see lawyers all the time today. I, I I tell lawyers I don't ever try a case on the telephone. You know, I've never won one on the telephone. But sometimes I call, lawyers call me up and they want to tell me what a, how proud they are of their case. It's just a wonderful case. We're going to Really, uh, and, and I don't think that's the appropriate time for it. In contrast, the hypothetical that you gave today talks about actually being in the courtroom. Uh, so you're, you're down to the point of adversarial uh, advocacy. And uh, I think that uh, uh, at that stage, you know, if you've got a good faith belief, you know, asking questions is, is, is certainly an appropriate uh, a line of attack, and uh, if it if that makes you uncomfortable uh, to do that, I think you're probably in the wrong profession, and and probably will have trouble meeting the aspirations of professionalism. So, uh, as I understood the question, I don't think there's uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I think uh, being asked the question, you have to remember, however, that as a lawyer. You have to be prepared for what the answer uh, may be. A lot of lawyers say, and I disagree with it, don't ever ask a question that you don't know the answer to. 
I say don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to or you don't care what the answer is. Sometimes you get the answer that you don't care about, but it, it doesn't really uh, it doesn't really hurt you. But, uh, you know, the, the, the bigger question for me is if the, if the answer is no and this is a vital part of your case, how are you going to contradict the witness? But as I don't see any uh, evidence of unprofessionalism uh, in asking the question. Robin, how do you feel about that? Uh, I agree with Lester, and I've tried even fewer divorce cases than he has. I've tried about 75 trials, jury trials, and and by the way, one was a murder trial, but I've never done any domestic or divorce. But if that were in a personal injury case, I think you have good faith basis to, to ask it, um, and you, 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 you have a duty at that point. It's your duty to your client to attack the credibility of any adverse witness, and I think you would not be fulfilling that duty if you didn't attempt to attack the credibility with something that you know and have a good faith basis to believe in. So I don't okay. see any problem with it. My question would really be: typically, you do have to find you do have to have some good faith basis to cross-examine a witness on, on on facts that you seem to know. And my question, of course, would be and ha- and is whether or not that was sufficient to to constitute good faith basis. Yeah, I believe I it is. Somebody, yeah, I think if somebody if somebody tells you something that, uh, if you will pardon the pun, they have intimate knowledge of, uh, <laughs> which seems to be the premise of your uh, question there, and they have no apparent reason to to lie about it or uh, lack a reputation for truth and veracity within the community, I, I think it's I think it's fair game um, right. uh, to ask that question. Now that you're talking, Lester, why don't you give us uh, some comments about professionalism and and, uh, in your trial practice? Well, I was thinking, uh, you know, uh, the founder of our little law firm up here, the law firm started in 1836 and 175 years ago, uh, my partner's great grandfather argued one Georgia one. Um, and I'm thinking that today I may be the first Cartersville lawyer to appear in front of a bunch of Atlanta lawyers from Cartersville. Uh, and uh, uh, thus, uh, with technology uh, being able to beam in a country lawyer, you know, for, for a seminar now and then. Uh, but I feel like I'm, I'm in really good company, uh, Rob, because the, uh, the you quoted Justice Benham. And I'm sitting here uh, in my study at my house. And Justice Benham's house is about a mile back. And I think that uh, what he expresses in there are uh, being from Cartersville are true community values and, uh, and small town values in a way. And uh, even when you're in Atlanta, I think you've still got such a tremendous sense of community. I mean, I'm, I'm a proud Atlanta bar member, even though I'm uh, in Cartersville and a proud member of the Atlanta Lawyers Club even though I'm in Cartersville, but there are communities there. And I think when you talk about behaving professionally and professionalism, uh, you're talking about acting in such a way that if your mother or father found out about it, which they inevitably would uh, in a small town, that you wouldn't be ashamed of it, Uh, that you do business and conduct business in such a way that when you go out into that community, uh, you're respected and not looked down upon uh, because of, uh, of what you do. Uh, sometimes I think too, you know, we talked about, and I, I think it's in a bar rule someplace. I've never found it, but I think every, 
professionalism seminar to qualify for the hours has to have a Harold Clark quote in it. Uh, and it's usually that one. And I actually had written that one down on my pad here uh, before. Uh, and I think it's just a great quote. You know, and professionalism is not ethics is the minimum. Professionalism is trying to get uh, as high as you can. Sometimes we sort of confuse, uh, not only do we confuse professionalism and ethics, but we confuse civility uh, and professionalism. And I think civility is an important component of professionalism because, uh, you know, all you have to do is turn on cable news and watch people shouting at one another these days to learn that we don't live in a very civilized society where there's a, a lot of good civil discourse. But professionalism actually involves, I think, a little bit, uh, a, a little bit more. And, uh, you, you know, uh, one of the things that I really like about the British bar is that they say you are called to the bar, just like, you know, growing up in the Baptist church, we're talking about you're called to preach. It's an actual calling that you have. We use the term admitted, which sounds like you just need to go buy a ticket and you bought the ticket, you know, you're in. But I think people who feel that sense of call and uh, and want to do what they do on a daily basis, those are the people that get the highest level uh, of professionalism. And, you know, I represent a lot of lawyers and judges. Most of what I do is plaintiff's personal injury. I do some criminal defense. I represent a lot of lawyers and judges who maybe have run afoul of an ethical rule. And it's sometimes easy to run afoul of an ethical rule uh, but if you're striving and doing your best and, and incorporate civility and trying to be the best lawyer that you can be, it's 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 pretty hard to fall short of professionalism. All right, let's let's go on to hypothetical two. Um, as part of a final hearing uh, in a divorce here in a divorce hearing. Trial court required that the marital home be listed by a certain real estate firm managed by the judge's good friend who was to set the terms and conditions of sale, including the listing price. The agent set out certain repairs to be made. The wife was then living in the home. After a month went by and no action on the part of the wife, the husband's lawyer wrote the judge and asked the judge to immediately order that the house be listed at $1.2 million in repairs to be done. She went on to discuss how she believed the house would never be listed by the wife who had no incentive to list it. She then discussed that the wife had moved her boyfriend in, that the house was in disrepair, the neighbors were insistent the house be sold, and the boyfriend was a drug addict. Now, um, in my own experience, much like what this was, um, I try never to respond uh, to to uh, contradict or otherwise agree or disagree uh, with someone's trying the case to the judge in a letter. And I say, Judge, I think we need a motion where we can present evidence. What is you all's opinion on the letter? I I never do that. I don't know if some if divorce is different, but I, I never write a letter to the judge, period, ever. Well, that I thought when Rob was outlining never. that scenario, I thought he was outlining why I quit doing domestic yeah, relations. Yeah, I, I think that may uh, be domestic, uh, but uh, but I've, I, I've practiced 33 years, and I've never written the judge, any judge, a letter. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've, I've written judges before. I mean, like, I think one of the last ones that I wrote was a um, – 
was a uh, uh, we had a summary judgment hearing. Uh, summary judgment was denied. The other side had requested a um, certificate of immediate review, you know, to go up to the Court of Appeals. And it really wasn't in my client's interest because uh, we, we didn't want to trail through the appellate courts for another 15 months, you know, to do that. And that's all done on pretty short notice. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote a letter outlining all the reasons that I thought uh, that this uh, particular uh, case should not go up uh, to the the uh, Georgia Court of Appeals. And the things that I put in that letter, I, I did argue the case, but the things that I put in that letter were not uh, 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 slurs and innuendo, uh, I, I will say, of the other side. What I put in that letter was that uh, uh, I believed that it was, you know, that it was time for a trial. Things had already been delayed by COVID. Why should it be delayed for another 15 months? Uh, that the issues were not particularly novel, that there was strong case law, and that if the other side wished to avail themselves of the right to take the case up on appeal, they would be enabled to do so at the end. And in fact, having had a trial, those issues would have been more fully formed. And I did that uh, mainly because I thought those were the most compelling arguments to do it, and they were not personal. Uh, but again, uh, you know, it may be that the context you're talking about was really not an area that I think Robin and I are, uh, you know, tried a lot of cases in, you know, just by its very nature, uh, these domestic relation cases, uh, you know, have some uh, personal matter uh, that's out there and, may or may not be need to be called to the attention of the court. Well, what what if the, the lawyer had addressed all this to the judge's uh, staff attorney? Would that make any difference? Um, I, Robin, I don't I, I, I don't I don't know. I um I write to staff attorneys as long as opposing counsel are copied, and I make that clear. I don't usually do that unless I've spoken to opposing counsel first about what I'm going to reach out to the staff attorney about. Um, I think that I think picking up the phone, I know we're in an email world, but pick up the phone and call be, before you do that, or at least email opposing counsel. So I think emailing or, or writing the staff counsel is a little different. Um, but I'll say, I, I don't know about all the personal facts in that, that hypo. I, I, I don't, in my world, we don't deal with that kind of stuff. Um, but my standard is I'm okay saying anything to a staff attorney or to a trial judge that I'm willing to say to, to them, to their face in person. And that's my standard. Um, and, and so I, I think it's, um, it, it's a good standard to live by. Don't put anything in an email or a letter that you wouldn't say directly to them if you're standing in front of the judge in the courtroom. That's that's what I go by. And by the same way, um, the fact that the staff attorney is addressed rather than the judge really shouldn't make any difference. Shouldn't. You should treat the same way. Be treated the same way. All right. Yeah, and right. and and further, that's a hypothetical because out here in the hinterlands, we don't have staff attorneys. So, uh... <laughs> all right. We're going to get away from divorce. Um, a lawyer is reviewing discovery documents, which are simply thrown into multiple bankers boxes when she noticed a memo from the opposing side's partner. 
to a young associate in the firm who was assisting the partner getting ready for trial. In the memo, the lawyer, the partner, uh, laid out his strategy for trying the case and told the associate to file a motion for summary judgment on several grounds, one of which was on standing. And said he remembered an old case which she used several years ago, which would really make the case for dismissal. She could not remember the name of the case, but it was five or six years ago and had the name Wilson. All right, the lawyer reviewing the documents who found this particular memo had done extensive research in this case, but paid little attention to standing due to his research, which did not include the Wilson case. So what should he do upon discovering this particular memo? Well, I would say return it and and not use it. But honestly, with those facts, if opposing counsel doesn't know a summary judgment motion is on its way, then that attorney needs some help, needs to associate co-counsel. I mean, if you don't know a summary judgment is coming in a case, you really probably don't have any business representing that client in the case. So I don't think they're really showing their hand too much, in my opinion. But you just return it and say, I know you didn't mean to produce this. Here it is. No biggie. Uh, I, I think that's an ethical issue too. I mean, I think it's immediately return it too. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't throw it on your desk and get to it, you know, a week from now, you know, you immediately return it. But I also think that uh, it's important to note one of the, uh, one of the sort of uh, ingrained tricks in that hypothetical is that you're talking about an attack that's coming, you know, on the case uh, from the defense and, you know, you can't say, well, geez, I'd love to figure out a way to, uh, I'd rather, I'd, I'd, I'd love to figure out a way to fight this case off, you know, but now that I know about it, I guess I've got to fall on the sword. That's, that's, that's not, that's not the case either. And, uh, I just want to make that uh, real clear. You still got an obligation to your client to defend it. It's not your fault that they made an inadvertent disclosure. Uh, and, you know, it, it, you're not exploiting that inadvertent disclosure on their part, however, particularly looking at case law and what the cases are, you know, in the thing. Uh, I mean, you would be if you went, if you went somebody and said, oh, I found that, what is it, the Wilson case or whatever, you know, and said, you know, so you better change your testimony here. That would be, of course, wholly unprofessional and unethical. But you've still got to, you know, look for other cases to fight back on that and being ready for it. Um, you know, it's still part of your duty as an advocate. Now, as, as I understand it, uh, according to Robin, um, th that there is an ethical concern here uh, beyond professionalism, and that, and that is that uh, you have to disclose the memo or whatever it was, but it does not give uh, any direction on what to do after you disclose the memo. Um, and so you would return it. I assume you would, even after reading the first two sentences, would read it. Is that, that pretty much agreed to? Yeah, I mean, I think you can tell pretty pretty quickly that they didn't mean to produce this to you. You can tell work product. Um, if you can't tell work product, you need some help. But you can tell work product and just stop reading it. Call the opposing counsel, say, look, I'm sending this right back. I read the first two sentences, realized you didn't mean to produce it. That's all I saw. And it, I'm sending it back. I'm not. I'm not using it because I didn't read except two sentences. That's it. It should never go beyond that. Okay. 
And and is that a professionalism issue? Should we or should we not be allowed or authorized to feel like uh, you're acting professionally if you read the whole number? Yeah, I don't think you should read the whole thing. Yeah, I, I, I think I think if you, you know, uh, th- th- this I can't tell from your hypothetical if you're talking about a, a, a about and uh, if you're talking about an email or email or a memo that's a paragraph or if it's, you know, 10 paragraph pages. But I'm reminded of uh, uh, one of my heroes uh, who is uh, the great Bobby Jones, uh, who, who won the Grand Slam as an amateur. Uh, uh, we have uh, several things in common. We both graduated from Georgia Tech, and we're both lawyers. Uh, being a great golfer is not something I have in common with him. But, uh, you know, he is the one that called a, called a stroke on himself when his ball moved, and nobody else saw it. And they said, are you really sure that ball moved? And so there's an element of this is, you know, I mean, you lost a tournament, uh, your, your character and your integrity uh, depends on what you do when nobody's watching. And so uh, no, nobody, you know, the inadvertent disclosure, it's not your part. You, you can read, you know, the whole thing, you know, unless you uh, unless you go run yourself a copy or uh, or, or uh, take a picture of it with your cell phone. There's no paper trail there, but you would know. Uh, in fact, uh, I believe Robin, uh, in a president's page, talked about all the things she learned from golf. Uh, she's using it in terms of professionalism. I, I applaud her, those those remarks, and I asked the audience to be sure and, and read that particular president's page. I think it's the first, first uh, part of the materials that uh, we submitted. All right, Robin, give us your uh, kind of synopsis of professionalism. Well, uh, going back to the Chief Justice's Commission on Professionalism and the Lawyer's Creed that you mentioned, Rob, focusing on the uh, integrity aspect of it and civility to other lawyers, I, I wanted to talk to to our group um, mainly about civility between lawyers and opposing counsel um, and what what we're seeing with with regard to civility among uh, attorneys and opposing counsel. I, I was speaking at another event the other day, and I I said the one of the, the, the bad things about COVID and being on Zoom and that sort of thing, uh, instead of seeing opposing counsel at depositions on a, on a pretty regular basis, is that we're missing out on the collegiality and the civility and the chance to have a, a lunch together or a drink together that really helps that relationship. Um, but to it, the, the, that part of the lawyer's creed says to opposing parties and their counsel, I offer fairness, integrity, and civility. I will seek reconciliation. And if we fail, I will strive to make our dispute a dignified one. I think that's, that's really uh, wonderful words. And I hope they're not just aspirational. I hope most of us are doing that on a daily basis. Um, I'll say this, that a couple of things. I, I happened to be watching the Supreme Court oral arguments um, today, this morning. And in one of the oral arguments, um, a district attorney changed their position on a major part of a case at oral argument and, and, had to, and, and said, reject our brief, we're, we're changing our position. 
Um, and that uh, district attorney got cross-examined by the justices about, well, when did you decide to do this? And, and by the way, did you call opposing counsel to let them know before today in oral argument? The district attorney said, no, I didn't. And yeah, and the look on the justices faces told you, told you all you need to know. Uh, it's okay to change your position in a case that that happens. Sometimes the, the facts require you to. Um, but if you're going to do it at oral argument, call opposing counsel and say, look, I just want you to know before you can get there, because it affects the opposing counsel's position as well or argument as well. But call each other, say, hey, I've, I've, I'm changing my opinion on this. Um, I have a, a couple of examples of where opposing counsel um, did the professional thing for me when I didn't have when when I didn't have all my ducks in a row. When I when I had a case that I believed a client and I probably shouldn't have believed the client. Um, and one, I can remember. <laughs> You know, in a deposition, the defense attorney was asking, well, do you have any tattoo, my, my client, do you have any tattoos on your body? And I thought, well, that's an odd question to ask. wonder why he's asking that question. Did he and, have a good faith basis? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he kept asking these really odd, you know, and you, you haven't, and he said, you haven't jogged at all since this shoulder injury, right? Not, not even jogged. Client said, oh, no, not at all. And you, you have any tattoos? And so it was really odd. Well, after the de- my client's deposition, a few days later, the defense counsel, who's an incredible person, calls me up and says, I'd like to come over and, and talk to you. I want to come in person to your office. I'm like, sure, come on over. So he comes over and we're sitting down in my conference room and he throws a photograph of my client who says he has a frozen shoulder and hadn't jogged since the date of the car wreck, winning the, the Thanksgiving marathon in Atlanta after the car wreck and he's got the tattoo that you know and uh he said this is what you need to know about your client that that to me is like he did the professional thing he could have held that he could have killed me with it uh but he had respect for his opposing counsel and said i'm going to call robin and give her the chance to do the right thing and that's what it takes um it's a great to say. I never will never forget that example. And that, that opposing counsel is one of my best friends. You know, I think I think one of the that's a great story. And and uh, it's a story everybody needs to hear. And uh, I, I really do think that uh, one of the one of the things that we probably sort of need to explore is why are people unprofessional? You know, what 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 makes you unprofessional? And I actually had an exchange today with a lawyer that, you know, was just sort of souring and everything else. But I thought about it a little bit, maybe because I had this on my mind. And people become unprofessional when they become scared, you know, when they become fearful of what the outcome is going to be. And so, you know, I I don't know. I didn't watch this argument this morning, but perhaps that D.A. was afraid. Oh, I'm about to lose this case. I've got to find something else. You know, that's gonna, you know, we, we need to try to turn this, you know, turn this thing, you know, another way. And, uh, and, and so I, there are a couple of things that, a couple of points I sort of want to make about that. One is you brought up the, uh, Rob, the, 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 uh, integrity, the word integrity. 
And, you know, uh, my Georgia Tech learning taught me that integrity comes from the word integer, which is one, one whole figure, and that you're one person regardless of where you are, and that you're the same person regardless of where you are and how scared you might be, you know, from time to time. And I think as we've seen uh, lawyers trying fewer and fewer uh, fewer and fewer cases. You know, I, I was the president of Georgia, Boda. Uh, you had to have 25 civil jury trials to get in when I was uh, uh, got in. I think we've got it down to 10 now. We have people that aren't trying cases all the time. And, uh, it, you know, I, I, I tell you, you know, I, I, I think I've delivered my share of licks, but I've taken my share of licks too. I, I tease my, my friends. You hear all these lawyers say, I've never lost a case. Um, I had, I'm not a mediator. I, I had some lawyers that wanted me to mediate a case, uh, for them. And I said, well, I don't really mediate case. Oh yeah, we really want you to do it. So I did it. One, I learned what a hard job that is to actually be the mediator. Cause I'd been in, you know, a hundred of them. But the second thing, um, that, that I learned was I actually got the case settled and I said, Hey, I got a thousand, I got a hundred percent success rate, you know, as a mediator. Why do I have that? Cause I've only mediated one case. So if you're going to go out, and this is supposedly, this portion of the program is for trial lawyers. If you're going to go out and try cases, you're going to lose cases. And don't be afraid of that. And certainly don't be afraid of that uh, in such a way that it causes you to lose your integrity in how you deal with others. Because that loss is temporary, but you lose your integrity, you've lost something you're never going to regain. Robin, did you have another example you wanted to give us? Well, we're in baseball season. Uh, and fortunately, the Braves are doing well, 2-0. Oh, but um, the when the Dodgers were playing the Giants, I don't know if everybody saw this. I sent this to Lester. Um, everyone knows the schedule of pitchers, of starting pitchers. Uh, but the Dodgers decided to switch their starting pitcher to a reliever uh, in one game when the Giants had prepared for that that original starting pitcher and the, the, the Dodgers manager texted the, the manager of the giants the day before say, Hey, I just want, you to know, we're going to change our starting pitcher to so-and-so. And they called it a courtesy text. And I thought if, if two opposing baseball teams can do that in, in the biggest stakes, you ever get to in baseball, then surely opposing counsel can do that with a text or telephone call or an email. Uh, give each other a heads up. Um, I, I think that was professionalism in, in baseball. Some people might disagree. Some people might say, oh, that, that went overboard. That was too much. But I kind of liked that. So, so, Rob, are we getting questions from our audience uh, today? No, it does not look so. Um, but I don't know that it's open, but it's me. supposed to use the Q and A. But uh, yeah, I, I don't also, see anything. Maybe they right. maybe they don't know, or maybe they maybe they don't want to. What they want to hear anything from me and Robin? I don't know. <laughs> All right, now we're going to get into uh, as, uh, several other ones. If we have time, we'll, we'll take them one at a time. Here, of course, deposition of the plaintiff. Defense lawyer insists it must occur in person. Plaintiff is immunocompromised 
And claims counsel insists the deposition must occur via Zoom because of this due to COVID-19 concerns. Defense counsel notices the depot forcing plaintiff to file a motion for protective order. Who is right? What should what should you do? Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to go first or Robin is. Doesn't matter. Whoever has a, a good opinion. Uh, I, I, you know, it. look, I, I understand there's some depositions that you need to see somebody in person. You think you can get more out of it. I think I've gotten more off of uh, uh, Zoom depositions, particularly with uh, – with uh, with some doctors I've deposed uh, over, I mean, because they I guess they're used to chatting with their colleagues. They're not not you know used to having maybe tough questions. <laughs> but you know, if you got somebody that's got a health issue, you know, there better be there better be a damn good reason, you know, why you're you, you know insisting on an in person deposition in today's thing because it's just it's just bad form, you know. And uh, but I think the real question with there. Uh, you know, it's sort of like what Robin's talking about. If you don't, if you don't know motion summary judgment's coming, you're not much of a lawyer. Uh, you know, if you can't see that's bad form, you don't know how to read the room. You don't, you, you, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how you're going to fare in a jury trial. Uh, so, uh, I think <laughs> my response to that would be, uh, to, uh, file the motion and, uh, stipulate that thing to a trial calendar as quickly as I could because the trial lawyer's got no better sense than that. It's probably not going to fare very well in front of the jury. <laughs> Uh, I don't think you scored any points with the judge. <laughs> no. All right. Uh, misuse of mediation. All parties agree to mediate a case in a complex, large, wrongful death case. Multiple parties, all parties appear in person. Plaintiff's counsel represents plaintiff's case, uh, presents plaintiff's case, including having all three adult children of the decedent relive the horrifying de details of their mother's death. Defense does not present any case and tells the mediator they will not be taking any offer of settlement. Zero. Plaintiff has to pay its share of mediation costs, even though defendant's position abruptly ends any potential success of mediation. We did have a little discussion about this. Um, why would, well, um, how do you all feel about uh, literally getting nowhere. Well, that obviously cost one side a lot of money and time for nothing. I think that's inappropriate. If if the attorney for the party who comes to a mediation and then offers zero and tells the mediator, we're never going to we're never going to offer anything. We're offering zero. That could have been accomplished with a telephone call. That that to me is unprofessional to have the entire other side show up with clients, present a case, and then say we're not offering you a penny. That that should have been a telephone call to avoid all that. Well, I'm told that some mediations, uh, since I do quite a bit of that myself, uh, is used somewhat for discovery. But in this particular case, um, when you don't get any offer. That may be going beyond the norm. Lester, yeah, did you yeah, have a you solution know, to that problem? Uh, actually, you know, I have a cut. This is what I call the $5,000 barbecue sandwich. You know, you, you go, everybody gets all prepared. They trot out to one of our fine uh, mediation outfits there. 
And at the end of the day, they tell them they put the buffet out and you go get your barbecue sandwich and you get the bill at the end of it. And you paid five thousand dollars and that's all you've got out of the mediation that day. And I think it's a, I, I think it's a horrible thing. Uh, horribly unprofessional thing. I see more and more insurance companies doing that in cases that I handle representing plaintiffs. Uh, they think the mediation, you know, it's ultimate. They don't even send somebody that has uh, what, what we would consider full authority to try to resolve it. They've got some limited authority and, you know, they go in there and it's really an exercise in uh, trying to talk the uh, plaintiff down. Uh, for that reason, unless somebody's offered me twice the specials, or it's an unusual case, I, I won't mediate with you unless you agree to pay for the mediation um, uh, to do it. But the other thing is this, and I, I, I think it's I think it's very important. You know, one of the things I think we have lost uh, a little bit in this generation, and I, I don't pretend that everything, there's plenty of, you know, we lived in a world where uh, people of color uh, and, and women couldn't vote and serve on juries. So we've made a lot of progress in a lot of areas. But one area we've not is, is sort of the use of telephones and uh, and mediation, you know, uh, Judge James Hill, who was a prominent practicing lawyer, used to talk about having members of the telephone club. And if somebody told you something on the telephone, you didn't have to write them a confirming letter because you you knew that they would stand by their word. Now we're trying our cases on, on the telephone. I don't try my cases in mediation. I, I think there are things you can do to protect yourself uh, against that. And, uh, you know, when I go to a mediation, I tell folks, you know, look, I'm here. And if you want to talk about the law, if you think there's some something's going to get kicked, kicked out of court, or whatever, I'll talk to you about it. I'll show you what authority I got. But I'm not talking about the facts. All those folks that sit on the other side of the table, if it was a jury, you'd strike every one of them because they're biased and you're never going to convince them. So why are you going to go in there and do a big dog and pony show, telegraph all your punches and, uh, and you know, still, you know, get your get you $5,000 barbecue sandwich and, and, and go back the, all the worse off for it. And uh, it, it's not professional. Uh, I think in, in, in defense of my colleagues in the defense bar, what, uh, what happens is, you know, uh, talking the plaintiff down in mediation has become a business model for insurers. And so they're telling their lawyers to do it and they don't feel like they've got any choice you know, uh, to do it, but to do it. And so I, I, I sort of appreciate that. We got judges too, who they think they ought to, you know, every case, oh, we're going to order it mediated. Like it's, you know, magically going to settle. That's, that's ridiculous. And usually the mark of a judge that hasn't tried very many cases, uh, at, you know, as well. So, uh, I think there are things you can do to protect yourself, uh, against that. And you should, you should take those measures. But uh, yeah, absolutely bad form. I, I think also if you're talking about defense counsel and they, they have a client, whether it's the insurer or the actual professional they represent, and and one of their clients, the insurer or that professional says, we're not going to offer a penny. That defense attorney has an obligation to speak candidly to his own client, and that's unprofessional if he doesn't. If if I had a client that asked me to assert some ridiculous position in a case, I would tell my client, no, we're not going to do that. And there have been times where I've had to tell client, if you want that asserted in court, you're going to have to fire me and get somebody else. I'm not going to do it. Um, but for some reason, defense attorneys think, don't think they have that same obligation to talk to their insurance company. I don't, and I don't know if it's 
concerned they're going to lose the business or what, but they will not speak that directly to their clients. And that that's the problem. But if you're not going to speak that directly to your clients to say, we're not going to behave like that, that's unacceptable, be, unacceptable behavior at a mediation, at least call me so I don't have to drive up there with my clients and waste my day. And as Lester say, says, pay $5,000 for a total waste of time. All right, we got, we got uh, three, four minutes left. I just got to get this one out. Uh, Robert. Okay. Geofencing. Oh, yeah. TV advertising law firm buys geofencing to be able to cover all ER rooms within the metropolitan area. Geofencing will create an attorney's law firm ad to pop up on someone's cell phone if they are physically sitting in an ER in the area. The person may be sitting and, and, and a lawyer's ad pops up, says, injured? Call 1-800-I'M-HURT. The uh, geofencing ad further denigrates another TV advertising lawyer, saying in the other in the ad that other lawyer is not a very good lawyer and you should hire this firm. What is TV ad says other lawyers will cheat you when it comes time to settle your case, essentially saying all other lawyers but their firm are liars and cheaters. You asked this several times when when I've read the hypo, is this professional? Is this professional? Is this professional? And lastly, the question is, how does this make the profession of law look in the eyes of the public? I'll, I'll go first, and I'll, I'll be very quick so Robin can, can put on this. You know, would you think a, would you think a, a transplant surgeon was professional? Uh, if he uh, geofenced the dialysis clinic uh, for for uh, kidney transplants, absolutely not. Uh, you, you know, and if you're talking bad, you know, uh, you know, Merle Haggard used to have a song, "Walking on the Fighting Side of Me." You know, the line was, "If you're running down my country hoss, you're walking on the fighting side of me. If you're running down my profession, you're walking on the fighting side of me." Robin, you got one minute. Totally agree. I, I think it looks terrible for lawyers. Uh, I have to ask when I'm striking a jury, I have to voir dire jurors on this sort of thing. It's it ethically. I think it's solicitation in a high tech form, which we don't allow, uh, certainly within the first 30 days of an injury. But but this is in the first first 30 seconds when you arrive in an ER. So it's it's solicitation. Um, but but professionally is it professional i mean absolutely not it's it's in a word disgusting but we can put it we can at least say it's unprofessional have you consulted with the bar about that uh, robin did you tell me i i have and uh, apparently our rules have not caught up to the geofencing <laughs> internet capability Okay. By the way, Rob, I, I'm, I'm keenly aware, and, and I'm sure our next panel is taking judicial notice that the Braves play at five, and we're finished with ours. So you can't blame the <laughs> trial lawyers. You got to you got to blame the appellate folks uh, if, if 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 they run over here. All right, we're we're not running over, although we have three or four really good uh, hypos. We'll have to save them for another day. Uh, with that, uh, we have concluded our hour on time.
Well, Lester, it's the time of our podcast where we share with our listeners a a law-related article uh, in the news. And since we have been talking about professionalism, I chose an article uh, that relates to that, I believe. And the headline of the article, this comes from Boston, Massachusetts, but the headline is, Lawyer Accused of Feeding Answers to His Client in Zoom Deposition Faces Possible Sanction. So the story is that this Boston lawyer uh, was doing a Zoom deposition of his client. He was sitting in the same room with his client, but opposing counsel was in in another location. And the opposing counsel thought he heard a whisper of an answer. And he gets the videotape back and listens really carefully and finds out that this this, uh, attorney had whispered at least 50 times the answer to his client. And so that lawyer, the other lawyer, moves for sanctions against him. And the judge w- w- was, as you can imagine, just very uh, put out with this lawyer who's whispering answers because it's not only unprofessional, I think it's unethical and uh, doesn't look good for our, our profession of, of practicing law. Uh, the judge wrote that in coaching the client during her deposition, This lawyer undermined the truth-seeking purpose of discovery. Furthermore, his conduct has the effect of sowing seeds of doubt in the minds of litigators and judges as to the effectiveness of remote deposition proceedings, which have become an important tool of the court during the public health crisis. And I totally agree. The lawyer lawyer apologized, threw himself on his sword, and ultimately withdraws from representation in that case, expressed remorse, regret, and embarrassment over the incident to the judge, uh, admitted that he he had a substantial lapse of judgment uh, in the circumstances. And I have yet, I I believe he will get some sort of sanction, but but, uh, I don't believe the sanction has been issued yet. Uh, But we we may have even talked about this in in the um, presentation, but uh, that that's just beyond the pale to me that a lawyer would circumvent the, the truth seeking process of a deposition by your client given under oath. And he's trying to tell his client what to say. That's just so inappropriate, unethical, unprofessional. Um, and I hope that is not happening in the state of Georgia with our our Zoom depositions. It's it's sad. And I think one of the things that's uh, particularly uh, sad about that is that it is um uh, it, it, it we, we called it an ethical lapse, and it certainly was an ethical lapse, but it was a lengthy ethical lapse. It lasted <laughs> throughout the deposition, and yes. uh, and it didn't come to light until apparently he got caught. And uh, so, you know, there are people who make a bad decision that have to make in a spur of the moment, but it just seems to me that that is uh, that that's 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 really beyond the pale. So for my uh, uh, article today, uh, I have an October 20th, uh, 2021 article in uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution written by Mark Nisi. It's uh, entitled, Woman Arrested on Allegations She Threatened Judge in Ballot Case. And uh, a woman named Erin Northrup, uh, who was 42, uh, is accused of threatening Henry County Superior Court Judge Brian Amaro's uh, judicial assistant after he issued a ruling in the uh, case that's been ongoing that he was called in to, to handle 
uh, about the 2020 elections. And uh, the, she basically didn't like the ruling. She called in, threatened the judge. Uh, she's been arrested uh, by the Louisville Police Department up in Kentucky, your, your native state, uh, Robin, and uh, is going to be extradited uh, to the state of Georgia on charges of threatening the judge. And I, I think that this is just horrible behavior. Uh, you know, you don't have to agree with every ruling and you have a First Amendment right to speak out uh, against that ruling, but to, to threaten somebody and to call and to make threats, particularly in this day and time when it seems that uh, a lot of threats are actually made good on, you know, to do violence, both by uh, enemies, foreign uh, and domestic. And this is the kind of stuff that our judges um, have to put up with. And uh, I think it's just deplorable. And I hope that uh, she is um, certainly prosecuted uh, appropriately in this case. It sounds like that they are uh, on top of it there. It does sound like they're on top of it. And um, I, I believe that no judge should ever, ever have his, his or her life threatened. And I think that we have experienced over the last few years a sort of uh, deterioration in our respect for the rule of law. And that needs to change because I think that the, the disrespect for the rule of law has kind of got us to this moment where people feel like they can threaten the life of a judge and, and be perfectly fine doing that. That that's, It's gotten out of hand. And it's and it's and it's not just always threatened. I mean, you know, we had the uh, federal judge in New Jersey, I believe it was, uh, who was, uh, you know, whose husband was killed, you know, there. Her son. Her son. That's that's right. And, uh, and her husband shot. Yeah. Son and it's uh, it's uh, it's 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 just not a uh, not not uh, not I think what we as a country uh, stand for when we talk about. Uh, liberty and justice for all. Totally agree and uh, makes the mission of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation e even more important uh, to promote the rule of law. Exactly. Well, at, uh, that's what we have uh, have for today. We uh, we will uh, we don't have a guest to ask what is your view of justice. So uh, since we've done the panel today, I'm going to ask our uh, listeners today, uh, to finish out with their own answer to the question, what is justice? And uh, with that, I'll let you do the closing credits if you want to. Uh, all right. Thank you, Lester. And until next time, friends, we will see you in court. See you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.